now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. Special announcement to our listeners. The FTCOE is releasing a free introductory leadership series. Forensic scientists play an important and fundamental role in the criminal justice community and are key to keeping our communities safe. The National Institute of Justice, through its Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, is therefore proud to provide a leadership series comprised of modules that introduce leadership concepts to the forensic scientist. Highly functioning leaders are essential to operational excellence, processes and analytical reliability, workforce competency, efficiency, implementation of technologies and best practices, and overall quality in the laboratory. Please visit ForensicCOE.org to learn more about this exciting, free, new introductory series. In this special release season of Just Science, we discuss leadership with prominent names in the forensic community. The last episode of this series features Jeremy Triplett, the laboratory supervisor for the Kentucky State Police Forensic Laboratories. Triplett discusses how a leader must not only have people skills, but they must also possess the ability to look beyond their own expertise when handling challenges. This season was funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Our guest today for the Just Science podcast is Jeremy Triplett. Jeremy is somebody who has been very involved in a number of forensic science improvement programs. The one we're going to talk about the most today is one that fits in with our series on leadership and management in connection with the National Forensic Science Academy, because Jeremy has been, I hesitate to say the most, we'll say he is, there's no one who is more committed to improving the ability of crime laboratory managers and leaders to do their job than Jeremy. So we're very, very fortunate to have Jeremy on with us today. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks so much, John. Uh, Thanks for the kind words. It's my pleasure to be here. So Jeremy is a drug chemistry supervisor at the Kentucky State Police Central Forensic Laboratory in Frankfurt. The thing I remember about Kentucky that sticks in my mind, and normally when I tell this to somebody from Kentucky, they'd be uh, not happy, but you would be. And that is, I know that you all have been a leader in response to dealing with clandestine meth labs. And my understanding is also in dealing with prescription drug abuse monitoring and things like that. Have you been involved in many of those systems and initiatives in Kentucky? Yeah, a little bit. So early on when I did most of my work sort of on the bench, clandestine laboratories in Kentucky were a big deal. They still are, not quite as much as they were probably in the the mid-2000s. So we did a lot of work with that, did a lot of work trying to do some training and education for responders. And then unfortunately, like you said, it's not something that you like to write home about, but Kentucky's one of the leading states in the nation, particularly eastern Kentucky, for prescription pill abuse. So we have seen a lot of that. We've done a lot of work on that, trying to figure out how to combat that. We see a lot of both of those. Yeah. Jeremy is certified as a fellow in the area of drug analysis by the American Board of Criminalistics. It's an area I know that you've probably been involved in for a long time. So tell me a little bit about how, when you went to college and got that degree in chemistry, did you anticipate going into forensic science? Is that something that you had planned from the get-go, or what got you to the crime laboratory? Yeah, actually, it's a pretty long story, but I wanted to go into forensics since about eighth grade. I grew up loving science. It's kind of the 
the sciencey nerd um, all my life, enjoyed chemistry the most. But then there was part of me that really liked law and the legal system. And so there's really no better juncture there between the two as forensic science. So I couldn't quite decide when I was younger whether I wanted to be a scientist or whether I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I I settled, I guess, on the the average. But yeah, since about eighth grade, I I knew that I wanted to work in the crime lab. It's funny, I I live in the same town now that I grew up in. Um, I moved away for college and then a little bit after college, too. When I began working May 16, 2003, my crime lab director at the time was the same guy, Jeff Warnicke, that gave me a tour of this building when I was in eighth grade and said, hey, I'd like to see what goes on in there. So it's been a pretty fun ride from that perspective. So tell me, are you all experiencing changes in terms of the kinds of drugs that you're seeing now and and the kinds of analytical challenges that you have in drug chemistry? I'd like to explore that a little bit because a lot of folks talk about in terms of sheer volume, the backlogs that they see in both controlled substances and toxicology are the hardest ones to solve. Where are you all on that? In terms of backlog, specifically talking about controlled substance analysis, not necessarily toxicology, we've been pretty fortunate. Backlogs have been pretty stable. We got backed up pretty significantly around the 2003-2004 time period. And actually, that's may have been uh, fortunate for me because that authorized some hiring that initiatives I got hired on. So we were pretty backed up pretty far in about 2003 and four, but I really worked hard about the mid-2000s. So in terms of backlogs, uh, we're doing pretty well in Kentucky. We typically see about 30,000 cases a year. Um, that's among our six different laboratories. It'll vary. Some labs have a little bit more than others, but our shortest turnaround time would be about 10 or 12 days at one of our labs, and then the longest would be about 30 days. So not too bad in the world of drug chemistry in terms of just volume and, and number of cases coming in. It's been pretty steady in terms of total receipts since about 2006, really. I just pulled those numbers last week doing end-of-the-year stuff. But what has changed, really, John, is the drugs that we do see. I think that across the country, if you talk to a drug chemist and mention synthetic cannabinoids or synthetic cathinones and bath salts, you'll get the sort of a universal sigh. In terms of analytical challenges, they have sort of stepped out ahead of everything else just because of the vast number of different isomers and different derivatives that we're seeing. It's sort of become a little bit more of a challenge in differentiating those in an analytical scheme as opposed to sort of the, the old days of just cocaine and methamphetamine. Right. So the, the biggest trends we've probably seen over the last three to four years is a significant increase in heroin in Kentucky, just as everybody else in the country has seen sort of this proliferation of synthetic cannabinoids. We did a webinar recently on GCIR. What's your all's approach there? I've read a, a preliminary paper um, from U.S. Army Crime Lab, the Defense Forensic Science Center, uh, some guys that I know that looked really, really nice. So I'm, I'm hopeful for GCIR on the synthetic cannabinoids. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, Dr. Clark at Auburn has done some great work. NIJ funded, the Vermont lab has done some work on that using a different instrument. There is a webpage that's going to be associated with this podcast. We'll make sure to link to a couple of the resources on GCIR. We have out there as well as to some of the research reports on that because I uh, definitely recommend a look at that. It is hard to do GCMS on these and I think sometimes folks don't appreciate as much as they might how some of these isomers are coming up and they might might have more ambiguous results than initial analysis might indicate. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I'm well aware of Dr. Clark's work. I really like it. Um, He's got a 
a wealth of information over the studies that he's done. I've met uh, met him and really admire his work. And you know, I I agree the the way that we sort of differentiate the isomers is is challenging. And you know, one thing we're trying to do in Kentucky is there's a lot of talk about how to how to be as as transparent and open about reporting results. And we're taking seriously in the last few weeks looking at how we report those results and ensure that we're not reporting something that we can't uh, actually discern. So that's been another challenge is ensuring that we, we stay within technology that we have. I'll make a confession to you. Before I got involved in forensic science and I was just a, I was actually a real, real scientist doing bench work and actually building things, uh, one of the things I was involved in was developing portable mass spectrometer systems and things like that to uh, do chemical and biological agent detection out in the field. And so coming into this community, I've, I've always been an advocate for trying to do more field identification, especially as things like ramen and other things that are a little bit more cost effective uh, emerge with a little bit better capability, although you know, I certainly understand the limitations and concerns. How do you feel about the whole idea of doing field identification of uh, controlled substances? Uh, you know, I think it shows promise. I, I haven't worked much with portable mass spec units, but I've done quite a bit of work with uh, ramen and uh, some portable ramen work, and I think it's pretty promising. I think I think we have to recognize that um, preliminary field identification happens. I mean, it, it happens right now with color tests. The ability to have something like ramen, um, which is uh, so much more discriminating than, say, a color test could be beneficial. I like the idea. I support portable ramen. I would say that, you know, I think that in the legal system, preliminary results could be used for, let's let's say, certain portions of the, of the process. I would always probably advocate for, if you're, if you're going to court, I'm having the, the substance tested at the lab. But I think that we're making some advances, especially the portable ramen, that enhances the field officer's ability to get an idea of what, what's out there, especially with some of these compounds like we just talked about, synthetic cannabinoids, that there really aren't good existing tests. Um, I know that there are some people working on some portable ramen technology, specifically with surface-enhanced ramen that would, would help pull out some of those cannabinoid signals, cathinones, and I think, I think it's promising. It's certainly the case that uh, breath alcohol is kind of a model for this. Uh, you know, it's basically field identification for toxicology, uh, very specific to alcohol, of course. Uh, generally, is managed out of the forensic laboratory, which uh, you know is responsible for making sure that the officers who, who who use those instruments are properly certified and that there's proper quality control in the systems, and uh, so they have a certain ownership out of, out of the forensic laboratory. Does the Kentucky State Police actually manage the uh, breath alcohol programs, or is that done more at the local level in Kentucky? Uh, we do. We do uh, service and calibrate the instruments, so we, we manage that part of the, the breath alcohol analysis in Kentucky. Yeah, we have that in our lab. Have you all had good experience with the breath alcohol program? Do you think it's a good model for how you might do field identification of, of controlled substances, or do you think there are limitations to that? Um, I think it's a decent model. Our experience has been is uh, more or less servicing the instruments. I think that's that's certainly a model. I've actually this is interesting. This might be a little controversial, but I've almost likened. We love controversy. You do. You do. (laughs) Great. Um, I've almost likened the potential for uh, portable ramen something along the lines of the drug chemist version of rapid DNA. I think they might share some interesting similarities. Um, obviously, rapid DNA is not widespread adopted, and there's a whole lot of issues that you have to work out specifically when you're talking 
Malkotis entry. And there's a whole lot more complicating factors with, with, with DNA, let's say. But um, I think there's some interesting models that we might be able to look at. The way that rapid DNA, more than, let's say, breath alcohol, the way we're thinking about going with rapid DNA might be an interesting model um, to look at for something like Pornful Ramen, such that I, I mm-hmm. guess I should elaborate more than just say that. Uh, you know. Oh, yeah, perhaps, I'd like to hear more, yes. Yeah, so I, I've been toying with ideas of what, what it might look like for field officers to perform the portable ramen, and what if the lab reviewed the data to sort of certify the result? What might it look like if portable ramen units were housed in the crime lab, sort of at a kiosk, let's say, where officers could come in and and use those and get some preliminary results, let's say, for a grand jury or or something like that? I think there's some interesting um, concepts out there about how you might be able to either house a portable ramen unit for for officer use in a lab or deploy the instruments to particular agencies, and then what might it look like for the the data to be reviewed by uh, the lab, the data to be adopted? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things we have to talk about, but I think there's an interesting idea to to sort of stir the pot with. I'm sure a lot of people might uh, cringe at those ideas, but I've just thought over the last year or so that the ideas we're talking about with sort of preliminary drug identification have a similar application to that to the same ideas we talk about with uh, rapid DNA. For those who, who work in policing, the idea of uh, being able to make decisions much more quickly makes a huge difference. It changes uh, – in, in military speak, it's the OODA loop, right? You know, um, how quickly you can observe and make a decision and act on, uh, on those observations. To the extent that uh, you can do field identification and do it in a way that is reliable, you're going to be much more effective in terms of your operations. I actually think it's going to help in – making investigation less subjective, getting, getting the science objective measurements earlier in the process, I think, could actually be beneficial in terms of uh, just the sheer justice of the system. Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It actually leads into what is our main topic here today, and that is management in the forensic laboratory, because these are all basically issues about management, aren't they? Yeah, they are. How does the lab run most effectively? What are the decisions we make sort of day-to-day that, that enhances the reliability of our results, and but also the efficiency? And uh, Jeremy, you've actually been involved in for quite some time in working through ASCLAD, and I assume other mechanisms too, in improving training and education and management in the crime laboratory. Uh, what got you interested in that area initially? It's interesting. I think it was my personal experience being promoted from bench-level scientist to sort of a first-line supervisor. This paradox that I feel exists, I think a lot of our managers' tendency is to promote sort of an excellent scientist. You excel at your casework. You don't make a lot of errors. You seem proficient and responsible. And so in a lot of cases, you sort of see those shining stars here and there performing casework, and they naturally sort of rise to the top. They become leaders. I don't know if that's a chicken and the egg type thing, which came first. But nonetheless, my background is science. I have a degree in chemistry. And so for whatever wonderful reason, they promoted me to lead a unit. But my education is in science. And sort of like the great book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, just because I may particularly 
enjoy chemistry and have a background in chemistry and like chemistry means nothing about whether I'll be effective as a leader of a unit. And so to that end, I, I went through a period of time where I was like, you know, maybe I should have just gone to business school because <laughs> right. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I mean, I can talk chemistry to you, but now I've got to lead people. And so that's a little exaggerated, but that's what got me interested in. I've been involved with the Ask Cloud organization for several years now, and I would say the primary goal of Ask Cloud is to create more effective managers and directors. So that started a series of conversations. Uh, one of my first entry into Ask Cloud was participating on the training and education committee before I was elected to the board. And we all seem to have these same ideas, like how do we teach scientists? I'm a book person. Right. I'm I'm a knowledge person, but now I need to be a people person or, or this is probably going to go badly. So that's probably the genesis of how I got so interested in this this managerial training of our crime lab leaders. I don't think scientists are any less capable than any other kind of profession in terms of management. But on the other hand, you know, we're not given education and training in management either as part of our work. Yeah, I would agree. I, you know, of course, there are natural leaders that are scientists and people that are people people. I know that the first few sort of leadership and training classes I went to that I was like drinking from a water hose, right? Like I've got a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and a Master's in Pharmacy and uh, there's been a lot of education there, but now nah, the, the most simple things about, you know, giving feedback to employees and simple stuff, you know, like people management and employee evaluations and this and that. I've been evaluated up to this point several times, but you sort of have a myopic view until they sort of hand you the keys and then you're like, wow, I, okay, I've got to drive this thing. I guess I've got to learn some things first. So, so Jeremy, one of the things that you've done is to try to uh, have Asklad kind of be true to its mission as you've laid it out by being involved in the training of Management Training Academy. So tell me what the goals of the training academy that you all have established thus far are. I'll be honest. Some people were talking about this before I really just kind of took the ball and, and ran. But the idea was really how do we take brand new, just hired or promoted supervisors that may have this sort of scientific background and formal education that we talked about? And how do we sort of supplement that and provide some some ground level management information, uh, management education. And so three years ago, we had the first ASCLAD Leadership Academy. And the, the, the idea was it needed to be accessible to our leaders, which meant probably not spending a long time off-site. So probably a hybrid model of, of webinars and something in person as well, because we value that in-person learning. So accessible and also affordable. So we wanted to ensure that we provided a product that was available on every every laboratory's budget. And so the goals were sort of management 101 for the employee that has never received any kind of formal education before, whether they're brand new or, or if they've been there for a long time, but just for whatever reason, hasn't had the opportunity to take a workshop or a class. You had the full range of folks, everybody from, say, somebody who might not even be a technical leader yet, all the way up to the a crime lab director, or what's the spectrum of folks who've generally been taking the class? Yeah, so it, it's been interesting. We initially sort of called this 101, but we've had probably every position possible take the class. Indeed, most of them are first-line supervisors would be the bulk of who's been taking this, but we've had technical leads take it, and we've had first-line supervisors um, quality managers, all the way up to director of a major federal laboratory. 
So we've seen a little bit of everybody. Is it focused mostly on the personnel management side? Do you get into other aspects of, uh, you know, like financial management or do you get into things like ethics and accountability or quality assurance? I mean, what's the scope of it? Yeah. So basically we, we do it in three different sort of uh, three modules. There's a leadership part, there's a communication part, and then there's sort of an HR training part. We probably do the least amount of financials just because uh, we, we sort of geared this really ground level. If we were to expand this, you know, that would certainly be something we would put at a, you know, sort of a, a higher level. Ethics is actually taught two different occasions. We do ethics in, in the leadership portion, and then we also hit it again in the communication portion. So the leadership part, we do four webinars on leadership. One is ethics, one is conflict management, one is sort of operational excellence. We do four weeks on, these are two-hour webinars, we do four weeks on communication. Students really seem to like this one a lot. We talk about communication styles. We use the DISC instrument. Everybody that takes the course can uh, fills out the DISC assessment and learns their primary communication style. That sort of is the paradigm through which they, they see all the communication lessons. That sort of um, was interesting to me, especially when I first took the DISC assessment. Of course, everybody thinks that everybody thinks and communicates and perceives things just like they do. But um, I think all of us that have managed anybody for more than maybe a week say that's clearly not the case. Yeah. So once the students know their communication style, they also get to know kind of how that communication style plays with other communication styles. And it's pretty fun, interactive. And then the last part is human resources. So pretty basic human resources stuff that a new supervisor might want to know. Appropriate, effective, and, and legal interviews and uh, how to evaluate employees. And John Collins is pretty much the forensic guru of uh, human resources. And so he's been really great in um, providing that training for us. Stuff like FLSA, um, FMLA, all the, the human resources uh, guidance that a, a brand new supervisor may not even know exists. Yeah, yeah, there is an awful lot out there. And that's, uh, that's all fantastic material. You've had a, a fair number of folks go through that. I see uh, on your bio, roughly 120. Have Has that gone through all of that material or is that different parts of it? That is all of it. That's everything. So we've completed two classes, two full sessions, uh, offerings of the academy. 147 is the number, wow. 26 different states. Uh, so what it looks like is in the spring, they'll do 12 two-hour webinars those 12 broken into the three topics I told you about before. Students have to take them. We do record them. We use Adobe Connect. So we record them. The students could make them up if they miss them, but we encourage everybody to sort of be present and interact with the questions. And, and then at the ASCLAD Symposium, we do a two eight-hour days of sort of a capstone. So that's the on-site portion. And uh, not to get two in the weeds, but we, we break it into four, four-hour blocks. And each instructor that teaches, uh, you know, the leadership, the communication, and the HR portion gets four hours each to do on-site activities and apply the sort of book knowledge, the lecture knowledge that they that they received in the webinar portions. And then we have a the second day, the last four hours is sort of a capstone assignment. All the students break out into teams of about six, and we give them an assignment that tries to sort of incorporate all their learning. And I won't give it away, so <laughs> if anybody out there uh, hasn't taken it and, and wants to take it, you can't cheat. We throw uh, things at them. They're sort of interacting in a laboratory operations environment. We sort of set up a structure for them to, to make some decisions about. And then um, we just kind of throw things at them every once in a while. Um, 
to see if they have retained some of the knowledge. So it's it's pretty fun. They say it's stressful, but uh, they all seem to enjoy it after it's over. Why don't you give us a, a, a summary of that? Yeah, great. So anyone that uh, wants to, to register, registration, if they want, just go to www.asclad.org. So they would register on the Asclad website, and is it it's just once a year at this point? Yeah, or? yeah it's once a year at this point. Okay. We put up a um, sort of a, an interest form. So if we've already run the academy for the year, or if you missed the registration, we have an interest form where you can just kind of fill it out, and we'll let you know uh, the next time we, we open registration for the next offering. That's excellent. That's excellent. Now, folks should know, as, as I alluded to earlier in the uh, in the podcast, we're going to be working together on what Asklad has already done in this area. I know that you all have had an interest in trying to build something, and just want to express my gratitude to to you and the rest of the uh, leadership of Asclad and being willing to, to partner with us to bring that to fruition. It's certainly our pleasure. We are really excited about this. This is sort of the down the road idea that we had initially, and that was that in addition to creating this um, informative and, and maybe stopgap informational sessions for our, our brand new supervisors, we've always looked long term, what could this turn into? Saw from the very early stages the value in having this sort of formalized, portable, that an individual could take with them from place to place and it could even be marketable, right? So the end goal would be that something like this would be what I look at as a hiring manager. I mean, well, I know that's great and this person's going to have some knowledge and skills that are that are helpful to my lab. So we're very excited about it. We're definitely excited as well. One of the things that we certainly want to do, there are things that you want somebody who is, you know, kind of a team leader type person to do. And there are some things that you want a mid-level manager to be able to do. And there's some things that a crime laboratory director, they have they each have their own types of crises and they each have to manage people both below them and above them in, in different ways. And as they progress in their careers, you know, it certainly can progress also in terms of building the skills that they need to not only be good managers, but also be good leaders within the crime laboratory and overall in, in public safety. That's a line that uh, I've used. Great minds think alike. You know, how do we take managers and, and turn them into leaders? So I'm excited. It's nice. We recognize that at different stages in a career and at different experience levels and at different um, levels of command, so to speak, there, there's certainly different challenges. So Targeting different positions with different roles and responsibilities is certainly going to be extremely helpful to the professional. Forensic science in recent years has gotten a lot of criticism, and some of it's fair and some of it's some of it is, frankly just isn't because anytime that there's a sure. crisis, everyone you know realizes it's very important work that's done in the crime laboratory, and they don't want to see a problem. But the fact of the matter is if, if you're dealing with people and you're dealing with a lot of technical assessments that have to be done and have to be done accurately, you're going to have problems. And you know sometimes you're going to have a problem that's deliberate. You can have people dry lab. We've seen that in the crime laboratory. But you can also have all sorts of other issues that arise sure. uh, among people of goodwill who are really trying really hard. And, and I think that's really the test of, of, of leadership in, the, in any circumstance, but certainly in the crime laboratory as well, is how do you how do you manage through that? How do you respond to that and be open, be transparent about what you're doing? while still being able to you know, build accountability in the organization and be able to do a better job in the future. That's a real challenge. Yeah, I would agree, John. I think it, another interesting part of that is something that Asclad is interested in too, and that is a particular individual as they promote through their career. My technical knowledge 
is limited to my days on, on the bench doing drug chemistry, right? And so what happens when I have a DNA crisis for which I don't have the technical knowledge to lead through? So that's another area that's sort of a tangential to the com- this conversation, but makes problems worse sometimes because as a drug chemist, I might try to fix all DNA problems through a drug chemist, right? Just, well, I just need a mass spec with more vial holders, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. more more places on the mass spec because I just have a bunch of samples, right? But that's completely not applicable to the issue of, let's say, DNA mixture interpretation, right? No amount of mass spec vial slots are going to help that. So I think technical knowledge is an interesting part, introducing people to the ground technical information of each section that they're now going to supervise. But back to your original point, I think it's very true that leaders guide their organizations in a way that strives for continuous improvement. We all recognize that there's a lot of forensic science uh, stuff out there. And it, just as you pointed out, you know, some is perfectly valid, some um, probably isn't. But leaders in the forensic science community strive to continually improve. Give me a little perspective too, Jeremy, if I, if I could, just while I have you. I found that in life, it's kind of your willingness to say yes to full. I was the youngest of four kids. And so I was always looking to see what you know everyone else was doing and catching up with everybody. And so I was always curious about what was going on. And then whenever there was a chance to volunteer to do something, I said yes. And I, I found myself uh, being put into positions of responsibility, and and that that expands pretty rapidly once you start doing that. You know, fairly young guy, and you're president of the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors. I, that's a pretty huge thing for somebody. How how did that happen? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm sort of sort of at a loss on that. You know, it's very true. Probably a, a class that I need to take is how to say no. Not that I would say no to being president of ASCLAD. I'm profoundly honored um, achieve that and get that um, sort of trust instilled upon me from the other board members. I'll be honest, you know, I, I'm not sure how I got there. I, I see myself as a guy that just works hard, likes to do everything as well as I can. I had a sort of a mentor early on that said, whatever you do, whatever organization you participate in, whatever, anything you take part in, you should leave it in a better shape than than you found it. And so I guess I just worked hard and hit the lottery. I don't know. I'm profoundly honored to be where I am. I'm hoping we can continue to do great things with the organization. You are fortunate to be able to have done that and still be in your hometown. Uh, that's a uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. But I will I will say this that Asclad as it exists now, I wouldn't say this was true always during the time that I've been involved in forensic science, but certainly as of today, the membership of Asclad is as excited and happy with the leadership of ASCLAD as I've ever seen in any organization. What it is that you all have been doing, uh, hard work is great, but I think there's something else you all are doing that is making ASCLAD very successful as an organization as of at least 2016. Well, I... I really appreciate that, uh, John, and it, I think, you know, at least in, in no small part is the leadership of ASCLAD, and that's not necessarily including me. Um, we've had some great presidents here in the past that we continue to build upon and their work. The board of directors that I've had a chance to, to sit with is amazing. They care profoundly about forensic science and our people. You know, I, I think it's just a lot of guys working hard and caring a lot. So, but the, it's very nice to hear you say that. I hope we continue to to represent the membership well and represent our community well. So, I appreciate the chance to have you on the Just Science podcast, Jeremy. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I hope that 
uh, here and maybe uh, nine months to a year, we can revisit and, and talk and uh, get people um, excited about that new era in management and leadership training and, uh, and forensic science. Uh, very much appreciate this conversation and, and all the work that you're doing for the crime laboratory community. Uh, well, thank you, too. And so we are really appreciative of all that you all do and, and do for us. So I, I too, am hopeful. I, I hope that uh, here in a few months we can talk about more solid plans and where we are and really get people excited. I'm hoping to be the first uh, first enrollee. <laughs> there you go. The inaugural enrollee. That'd be fantastic, Jeremy. I look forward to that. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have a good day. Thanks, John. You too. This episode concludes our leadership special release season. If you are hungry for more leadership content, the FTCOE will be releasing an online leadership series. Jeremy Triplett, along with Jody Wolf, are two of the instructors for the FTCOE leadership series. They are joined by other prominent leaders in the forensic community, such as Dr. Tim Scanlon, Dr. Terry Anderson, and Dean Giliamas. The module topics include understanding generational gaps, leadership and change, ethics, emotional intelligence, and much more. Please visit ForensicsCOE.org for more information. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.